Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson. Yay! Um, in case you guys are tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things innovation, ideas, cool people doing cool things. This is a pretty nice five o'clock shadow, by the way. I, I don't know. Uh, and it's not even five o'clock. So that's that's impressive. So it's five o'clock somewhere. That's true. It's a happy hour on your face. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Tom Waller, say hello. 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 Lovely to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, this is actually the first time we're seeing each other's faces. That's right. We've yes. heard, I mean, other than like digitally. Yes. Um, uh, so I guess for starters, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of 101 on what a Dr. Tom Waller is? A Dr. Tom Waller. I tend to, I tend to not overuse the doctor part because uh, it would be immoral of me to claim that I use my PhD on a daily basis anymore. <laughs> but no, I'm... I uh, I am British, so apologies to anyone that can't quite understand me. No, um, I automatically feel lesser than just, <laughs> just just by the nature of the accent. But um, no, I'm a um, what am I? Depending on who I'm speaking to, I'll I'll claim innovator, sports technologist, scientist. Um, but but generally, I'm just one of those people that happens to be a little dissatisfied with the world and have managed to get myself into some fun companies where they give me the opportunity to to address that yeah and so um i mean historically for me i am first and foremost i suppose an academic um i studied at a university in the uk called loughborough university uh, loughborough is uh, actually now officially the best place in the world to study any kind of sport related degree according to loughborough no well, <laughs> they're, they're they're pretty good by the way this is the best show service. in the world to tune into to hear really cool people talking about innovation <laughs> just, so, just so you guys know no, yeah. no the independently uh, verified nice um but i studied design engineering um as a first degree so my 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 obsession initially was to get into car design i just i oh, love wow. i mean i'm i'm a i'm a, I'm a I'm a guy grew up in in a in a pretty rural place part of the UK so my obsessions were cars and sports not at all cliche and <laughs> so I, I you know I tend I found that I had a bit of a, a, a bit of a bent for um, the sort of the creative and technical side of life and there originally thought well I don't know how to make a career out of that in sports I'm probably not going to be the professional athlete that I aspire to be did so, you play any sports? Were yeah, you, were yeah. you athletic? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I grew up in a really athletic family. Um, before, like as a as a youth, it was rugby. So I don't know whether all of your listeners will be fully aware of the sport of rugby. Rugby shirts were a big fashion statement in the nineties. They were okay. So we're close. Okay. Well, yeah, but rug rugby's it's kind of like what we would call American football or hockey, but um, without the pads. So it's for really tough people. Um, nice jab. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no no, pads, no was, helmets. It was, it was, it's, it's an incredible sport where in the UK, rugby or football tend to be the sort of the dividing lines between a lot of, you know, young boys, particularly at that time. And it's changed dramatically over the years. But, um, I mean, my dad left me with an interesting statement, which was a football or soccer, sorry, is a game for gentlemen played by thugs. Rugby <laughs> is a game for thugs played by gentlemen. So <laughs> I chose the latter. Nice. Um, but no, that, that was one of the reasons I went to Loughborough because Loughborough is really strong for engineering, for technology. They had a lot of ties with automotive companies uh, and I got to play sport at a really high level. 
um, which I promptly gave up as, uh, when, as soon as I started. And, um, that, you know, that was, there were a number of different factors on that, but really just the distraction of being in this incredible place and yeah. being able to seeing and doing all these incredible things. Studied design engineering, went to work for Ford for a year, mm. decided that car industry kind of sucked, certainly for me. Right. Um, I just didn't see the opportunity that I imagined as a, someone that wanted to be a true creative in that space. It was, these are big companies, you know, a lot of the smaller, smaller companies were very artisan. So there was just... There was a gap that didn't seem to exist for me. Right. And so I came back in a bit of a flap thinking, well, what am I going to do? Um, recognize that within our school as mechanical and manufacturing engineering school, there was a, a sports technology research group, which independently verified is the biggest, <laughs> the biggest uh, collection of academics all dedicated to the to the academic study of sports technology wow. as a as a hybrid uh, yeah. research focus. So, this is if you if you imagine the early days, this was um, predominantly looking at engineered products, bats, balls, rackets, clubs, you know that kind of thing. Right. Um, less about the human per se, but but performance was the focus. You know, yeah. Can we make these products perform better? Huge projects with Callaway helped build the, not me, but the group helped build build the the Big Bertha Golf Club, mm -hmm. one of the best-selling golf clubs of all time. I was a caddy at the time the Big Bertha okay. Golf Club came out. Yeah. And everyone was like, oh, it was it was all the rage. Short, shortly afterwards made illegal, which is always a sign of- Oh, yeah, doing, that's true. I doing, forgot about that. Yeah. When, when we do a good job, that's usually what happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so a number of projects like that for Dunlop, for uh, Callaway, for uh, you know a lot of major sporting goods brands, and so it appealed to me. Um, and I, I got into that by connecting with the academics involved, and it just so happened there was this young academic just joined. Mm -hmm. He'd done his PhD in human performance, and he was a biologist. Mm -hmm. He was attracted to the department because he got interested in technology. He he launched a company from his PhD selling a technology a performance technology to elite athletes and uh, he was also a rugby player so a bit of a bromance ensued <laughs> and um, you know, we bonded over rugby and the idea that technology and performance didn't seem to have been properly addressed yet right and um in the said, sense that the human component the human component yeah that 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 holistic view of what performance right. really can be you, you know using the disciplines that we understood you know of the sciences of the human body um the the sciences of the built environment and you know products and that kind of thing and um and so uh, he said well i you know i've got enough money i'm i'm new um i've got enough money for one phd do you want to do it and um my initial response was, well, no, PhDs are for losers. I want to get a job. And, um, <laughs> and then and, you became a loser. Well, there, and then there was this, yeah, somewhat. Um, <laughs> but the, the, he said something that I will simply never forget. So his name's Mike Kane. He's a professor now. Mm. Um, and he's done some incredible things uh, at and around Loughborough. Uh, he said, um, what if what we could create could be so uniquely useful that the entire industry will be knocking down the door to work with us? And I'm like, I'm hooked. Okay, let's do that. Did he know? Did he know what that was? No, I don't think so. I just think that he'd seen. The, he'd the seen goal this, was the bar. There was a bar that. that yeah, that that we could create a whole side to the business of of doing the research that the group was doing around human performance that we believed 
the the world wanted and i loved the idea of being uniquely useful i'd always felt mm. uniquely useful i just didn't know how to apply it and um and so he then went from being an academic started an undergraduate program so he started to attract younger talent which was you know, really exciting he eventually became head of the research group i was his right hand man we built a brand new institute, generated a ton of investment. We had up to 50 PhD students at one time, That's all amazing. dedicated to this. Uh, we spun out a company and the company had a couple of arms. We were on one side um, having a ton of ideas about what we could do to, to, to build products for the industry that we sold to the industry. Right. So we had a licensing revenue and we had so many companies and this was the kicker and this is what really kicked off certainly my career. We had so many companies coming to the university wanting input from the university, but didn't want to get embroiled in the long-term, slow-moving aspects of what right. it is working with the university. So we said, well, why don't we use this vehicle, the company we've got, and build a consultancy arm? We got the university to buy in, so we didn't have to pay them any overheads. And we got to a place where we could just churn through like real That's rapid amazing. projects. Would, had you had you worked at this point, or did you just go straight through through your PhD? Like, did you when you graduated in undergraduate? Did you go and work somewhere and then um, go back to school? I did. I did a year with Ford, um, oh, so it would be like a formal. I mean, I feel like I've always worked. I'd started my own company. I was uh, I was do doing writing gigs off the side. Um, working for you know, uh, sports magazines. Yeah. Um, so I'd always had things going on. Um, this, I suppose, was the first job that represented what has become this since like the rest of my career so far. Yeah. No, it's just, it makes me think about like the, the, the idea of like having that world experience before you create a company, right? Or in the sense of you have an influx of interest in what you're doing and then that just becomes the thing, uh, you know, so it's kind of, I guess they kind of go hand in hand to, to some extent. Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I think I lent more into the naivety, right. which was, you know, I knew enough to be dangerous and not enough to hold me back. Right. And, um, that's become a little bit of a mantra. Yeah. And I believed at the time, you know, if depending on what the consultancy was going to do, that that would be what it would be that I didn't need to go and work for big company because I could work for all big companies because I could assemble a crew of people, you know, a diverse group of talent and we could just go project to project just doing really cool stuff yeah. and feeling really fulfilled by the fact that we weren't contained or held back by the the what we were increasingly becoming aware of, which was the, you know, the dynamics and constraints of, of enterprise, of corporation. Yeah. It's, all, well, it's, and it's also like almost like a, a danger of being an expert, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it was, in, in a sense. it was, it, it was cool. To, it was really cool to be an expert, but we didn't, we didn't have the restraints of, well, we've got to commercialize this within a product environment and understand all of the conditions of then retailing or wholesaling or right. whatever that might be. But we learned a ton by osmosis because these companies increasingly were pulling us deeper and deeper into yeah. the work that they were doing. And as part of that, and this was what this was the what really made it the uniquely useful component. I got to work with the team on every single product category you can probably imagine, from the tips of your toes to the top of your head. You know, from protection equipment, from from children to seniors, from Olympians yeah. to recreational athletes, with technologies that someone had invented in their garage and didn't know whether they would work, to major companies hitting a roadblock where knowledge was now, you know, or absence of knowledge was now a barrier to their progress. Right. And we figured we could help. And we would just do these rapid turnarounds, projects that would be a day to two weeks to three months. And 
and the university liked it because at some point when we were having then these repeat consultations, you know, we would be attracting the company to say, how do we find out more? Well, you know, if you could invest in supporting, sponsoring a PhD, right. maybe you should. That's a little elbow nudge. Yeah, so yeah. It, it was a win-win for everyone. And um, I got to the point where, um, I don't know, nine out of 10 times, and I won't name names, but we were telling people that their stuff just didn't work. And it was super frustrating because we could see that if we were involved in the process earlier, we could take that more scientific, methodical right. approach, understand the problem better to create more likely a successful solution. But when you do jump on a uh, on a moving train in that instance, I mean, there are some iter iterative things you can do, you know. Yeah, it was always is that, timing. Is the frustrating part that they weren't willing to make the pivots that would be necessary or like what was, what was, where was the frustration? There's, there's generally a culture in creative companies of not invented here. So that they would rather they do the invention and then looking for a more of a rubber stamping exercise in people like us really helping them to, to, um, to, to build claims or to demonstrate right. that what they did was amazing. And, you know, I, I don't know how many it's probably times more frustrating for them though. Cause I, I think giving that yeah. sort of honest feedback, I think a lot of times when, you know, I, I, like I was sort of birthed in the agency world and the clients always write to an extent, right? Yeah. The minute you give them combative or, uh, argumentative, whatever feedback, it's like, is it can be deflating for them yeah, more I mean, so than no one wants to know it's the hardest thing to be a consultant and say well the thing that you paid for uh we're giving you a no and and if you would if you want us to get you to a yes you're gonna have to do more consultancy it's it's a, it's a tricky it's a tricky <laughs> yeah. tricky business model exactly but it's like taking your car and to get fixed and you're like oh you're gonna need another car like yeah i don't even know what that part is yeah but, okay, all right i'm here now yeah, yeah 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 once you're in you're in and and it was you know we learned a ton about relationship management we learned a ton about the different dynamics within the organizations we were working with what is the what is the role and influence of a designer what is the role and influence of the business director the the raw materials groups that you know, we could really see and understand the hierarchy at different stages of the development. Yeah. And and a, a lot of these companies have their own research or R&D arms. And they, um, what we recognized that we were doing so differently was just the ability to transcend any discipline. So we worked hard on being everything from the deepest aspects of what it is to be a human at a psychological level at the time. Mm -hmm. And we've you know, matured that a lot more now. Um, and um, all the way through to, you know, what is it to be in a precision engineering manufacturing environment where, you know, the very latest uh, uh, technologies are influencing how they can build products. So there was just no limits yeah. to our ability to help. With that, you know, when did passion kick in, right? Because I, I think either whether it's passion, passion for the sports technology arena or just in the craft as you're speaking of it now, because I think I, I think at some point a switch turns on. Right. There's one thing when you're 19, 20, 23, like, oh, this is what I might do for the rest of my life. Then it's like, ah, yes, like the, something connects with you personally. Like, well, when, when did that happen? Well, it was, I think the biggest, it was after taking a bit of a risk, which was, um, you know, we were sitting comfortably in the consultancy. I was doing some you know, research work for the university on the side. And one of my clients, Speedo, said, um, hey, we're looking to, um, I'm wearing some right now, by the way. You are, yeah, me too. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, they uh, they were looking to uh, hire a new leader for their innovation R and D team, and uh, the guy that was running at the time had come off the back of probably one of the most successful 
product launches in sporting history over the last, I give it 50 years, which is the product called uh, the Laser Racer, which took the Olympic Games by storm in 2008. Mm-hmm. And the the appeal of picking that up and taking it to the next level and having the responsibility, having understanding why if nine out of 10 times before I was telling people that their stuff didn't work, putting my neck on the line to, to be making sure that like the, the, the nine out of 10 things we do worked. Yeah. And, and so there were, the switch became getting the other side of that risk, you know, moving to the other side of the line, going away from, you know, being the agency it's a huge being stretch. Kind of, and just, and, and, and taking responsibility for a team. And, you know, I took a, a, a lot of, a lot of risks associated with, well, I, I hadn't led a commercial R and D team before I'd led, I'd led a team right. that was really you know, comfortably sitting in an academic facility and environment. And, um, what I, what I realized in there was, um, what, what, what leadership can look like. Mm. And I discovered my leadership and it was actually going back to you know, being captain of the rugby team. I just thought, okay, this is all I got to draw on. You know, we, we were a small band of, you know, thugs, brothers and thugs <laughs> you know, in rugby and the same in the consultancy. It was just a tiny team of people. Yeah. We, didn't, we didn't have the hierarchy or the complexity. Like, well, this is all I got, so I'm going to use it. And it, really worked Mm -hmm. i realized that a lot of people that had more traditional background going to those environments just had just a completely different way to navigate the business and well something something to be said about being scrappy or you know so there's a line of thinking that says some of the best innovation comes from constraint and so when you do have a small team or you don't have enough resources or you don't like you are an academic institution and you don't have like travel but whatever the, Mm -hmm. the hurdles are you figure out in uh, innovative ways to overcome those things. Yeah, well, and 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 coming from a place where we'd had to every day obsess humans, I realized that it, I, it translated just as much to the team that I was leading. And so, you know, I got to an environment there was a there was a ton of brand success around this product, and the the question was, well, how do we turn this into a commercial success? And what I walked into was classic that I'd seen in so many other companies, whereby innovation r&d team sitting on a bit of a pedestal the rest of the business going well how are we going to turn this into something and you know there was this void this gap in between and right. it was, you know somewhat obvious to me it's like well why 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 do we think we're special why do we why do we believe that or why do we not recognize that these people are our customers you know we work for them and if and if their business is not successful then we don't have a budget yeah and so i just i just i flipped the culture when i got there and then i started i just thought that well you know, they they had done an amazing job and i thought well if i codify that um and if i bring some of the other knowledge that um that i'd had from just experiencing this whole human approach well then maybe we can do a better job yeah and so we we really flipped the culture of how innovation and the r d team was was consumed within the company which then in turn changed our ability to translate intellectual property to 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 ease and smooth yeah. out the relationships which then accelerated our ability to innovate because if everyone wants to work together and all those diversity you know diverse backgrounds are sitting around a table now talking together about what are we going to do well then it happens and so i don't i don't think i mean in hindsight it sounds like such common sense but um at the time, it felt like, well, this is the way we. Oh yeah, no, work. We're, we're all creatures of habit. You know, like yeah. most companies, 
even if they hire someone as talented as yourself, they don't know how to make the adjustments that they need to make. You talked just a second ago, you know, about this idea of building relationships, yeah. which wouldn't be on a job description, you know, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. you have to build relationships and then do the thing, like yeah. the shiny objects. Um, how did you go about navigating, you know, just the the nuances of cultural change? Well, it was it was primarily about recognizing the value and different kinds of diversity. Right. So what what tends to happen is, you know, birds of a feather flock together, right? And that in in the moment that it happens, you see a narrowing. You see you see a slowing down of 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 true ideation right. from from happening. So what I taught and what I represented was, you know, there's a difference between inherent acquired and collective diversity and we need all of them. <laughs> so, you know, I, I have a particular background that has value. And then there's part, part about what I represent is, you know, white male that makes me not particularly diverse. So I need to make sure that my inherent diversity gets better by acquiring more diversity, the new things that I can learn, the greater empathy that I can generate and who I hire and who I partner with. Right. And then it's not about a relay race. I've, I've been, you know, I, I fundamentally disagree with any process in a business that, that talks about handover. You know, I come from team sport. That's really my heritage. Yeah. doesn't matter who scores the goal. It matters that the goal gets scored. And, you know, you practice patterns of play, but, it, it, yeah. it's it's not it's not a okay i've done my job now it's your turn so we sit around a table we close a circle we make sure that the people around that table are both inherently uh, are acquiring di diversity and as a collective we are super diverse it's a it's a lot to debate through it's sure. a lot of it's a lot of different opinions and points of view to to navigate but communication and good communication pre-built relationships can smooth over most of those and bumps. also just like the i mean in in that type of environment where it's not accounting and it's just it, you, where you can actually hand off like I did this you know part of the I did 1999 they you still do have a role still, <laughs> there's I think the finance team still have a role I know yeah. I agree but I think what I what I was getting at is that you also have to have groups that are willing to have tension with one another right yeah. like voice your opinion and it's a safe space that we're all here for the greater good. I've been using this phrase a lot lately, which is uh, as, as opposed to trusting the process, trust the goal. Because yes. the process is going to be messy and I yeah. may disagree with what you did yesterday, but I do trust that you have our best intentions in mind and like yeah. keeping that, in the, uh, keep that in the, in your head at, at a point of contention. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if you found something similar as well. I often get asked about the process. Yeah. And like, well, the process is whatever is required to get to the outcome for that particular outcome. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, reading a lot and meeting a lot of people, um, you know, we will, we will always codify and maybe talk to a particular process that we may have used, but it's not a rinse and repeat. Right. That the, 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 the number of projects that we've, I've worked on is directly correlated to the number of processes that we've had to figure out and um, getting people to outcome. Oh yeah, you know that 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 the output, the outcome, the deliverable, the end state, you know, the vision that we can all close our eyes and imagine. Once everyone's on that, well, then we can all operate entrepreneurially in our own it's little so, bubbles. It's so funny because I think a lot of a lot of times when it's an assignment or a, a CEO or whoever the the asker is, will say we want to accomplish this goal. Right? I just led a day long brainstorm for a, a sizable organization, and they were like. 
tell us about the process. And I was like, I have 50 more questions before I even <laughs> get there. Cause I have no, like, you know, I'm, it's not a rinse and repeat kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I need to know who the personalities are in the room, you know, where they're coming from, like all these other inputs that I think sometimes can be annoying for the person who just wants to get to the thing. Yeah. But that, I mean, that's good business is operationalized. And that is fundamentally counter to what they're asking people like us to do. Yeah. Which is to, you know, back up from the problem a little bit and maybe and perhaps offer or ask that that we're, that we're doing it totally wrong. <laughs> and um and and if it's not totally wrong, well at least there might be a better way. Yeah. And and we're not gonna do a better way by refining what we're doing. We're gonna do a better way by saying, okay, what are the competencies in this space? What are the basic goals that we're trying to achieve? And and are we still solving the right problem or do we even understand the problem that we're solving? And that I don't know how many times I've said that in my career, but it must be yeah. in, the, in the millions. And what there. are we discovering along the way? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, like always just having an eye out for, for insights. Mm -hmm. um, so fast forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of white male and the space where white space was, was birthed. Um, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> They're not related. That was, that was a weird, <laughs> that was a, such a weird segue, but I am the segue king. If there is a, the real Segway guy, not, I mean the vehicle, mm -hmm. Segwayed off a mountain. But the guy that bought Segway, not the guy that invented Segway. Ah, the guy that, good the guy, Yeah, the guy that bought the Segway Been company. Been telling that anecdote wrong for years. Yeah. I mean, it, it's still, the owner of Segway ended up, yeah, it, it, um, it's a little bit like Kodak, you know, they yes. got the thing, they created the thing that killed them. Yep. Um, speaking of which, see, another segue. Um, no, tell us about the white space at Lululemon. And I mean, you're basically bringing your expertise and methodology to this organization. You've been there for, uh, seven, years seven years, nearly. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. seven years this September. Um, yeah, I mean, Lululemon oh, had been a, a client. I'd consulted to Lululemon back in 2007. And I remember getting on a plane, coming back to the UK saying, these guys are either not going to be here next year or they're going to change this industry forever. <laughs> and the That's latter great. happened. And um they had decided, you know, they were hitting a point in their trajectory where the rate of growth was something that they really wanted to influence themselves. And they said, well, we recognize other companies like us have an innovation team. So they went scouting, they found me. And um, I recognized, and even the company I was at prior to that, there were cultural limits that didn't allow me to do everything the way that I really wanted to do it. Right. And Lululemon offered a really interesting flavor of culture that I'd just not seen anywhere ever before. And um, how I generally describe that in simplest terms is I've never seen anywhere with such a high tolerance for ambiguity. Like this is a group of people that <laughs> would that. they would throw the baby out with the bathwater if if that's what it meant to serve their guests better and better and better. Uh, they were a retailer and vertical at that, which means they have complete autonomy about how they show up to the guest anywhere in the world, any way they like. Mm -hmm. You know, they are pr primarily, you know, at that time they weren't unknown in the UK. People thought I was insane. Um, you know, a lot of the my, my colleagues they're just like Lulu who. Um, Hulu, but the but the people that knew knew you know, yeah. they knew that we that this might be an interesting um, option. Yeah, and so um, when I I was hired uh, to head up uh, product innovation, and I got there, I looked around the room, you tapped the culture a bit, did a bit of mining, thought if I call my job innovation, I am going to get lynched. This is an innovation company. Innovation is the fifth word that comes out of every person's mouth. I can't stand here and claim it that 
I'm the you know the the one that's going to do right. this for you or not nor if I do that it's like well now we don't have to do it anymore and now it's someone else's job so the other the other language that I was hearing more and more you know more and more in the industry more and more in the sort of the community that I'm a part of but in particular at the company was there are these white spaces you know we're such a fast growing company there are these adjacencies yeah what are we going to do about them and I said I think that that's what you need us to do so mm. I rebranded it to white space just to be literal about the fact we are here to to discover and populate the white spaces that the brand should probably be occupying right and sometimes a category that we're already in has plenty of white spaces you know it's stagnant hasn't been thought through properly for decades or me multiples of decades or or it's or it's broken mm. um but more importantly there are categories that should exist there are businesses that should exist there are models of operating that should exist that could exist just just by giving the right group of people the right kind of focus um, I went into the business and said, okay, rule number one, projects own people, people don't own projects. You know, we are not mm. we are not a brand inside a brand. You know, we are a competency. So I'll hire people that don't exist here, scientists, engineers, technologists, people that understand human behavior, you know, better than, you know, we currently do, or maybe that anyone does at the right. moment in the world. Um, a, a focus on engineering and technology that doesn't come from an apparel background. You know, we were then a bit of a of women's yoga apparel retailer. And actually, if you asked external people, that's how they would describe us. That's not how the company was founded. Right. You know, this was a leadership and development company that that wanted to elevate the world. That was, you know, the simple term that was used and said, well, then then we are unconstrained. We can learn from yoga. Mm. We can we can lean into the fact that we've captured the imagination of you know, females all around the world, certainly all around North America at the time, and um, that taught us a different way to lead. It taught us a different way to interact with our consumer, our guest, as we call them, uh, a different way to build the models of retail, and ultimately a different way to build an innovation entity, which is you know, absolutely human first. And mm -hmm. I use that term deliberately, not not human centered or, or design thinking uh, because totally get it. I want to, cause I believe that there's a, there's a, a depth below, below what you see as behavior. So if human centered design is all about understanding what humans do, um, I want to get down to like the neurological molecular biological level of mm -hmm. why. So it's leaving no stone unturned as to what makes a human tick, what could make a human reach their potential. Yeah. And we'll build that. And that, the fact that projects um, own people means that we don't get precious. Well when, well, when you think about like the p human potential, yes, in the sports technology world, there is movement, there's the biology of it. But in a yoga practice, it's so, and just to say that you're rooted in yoga, not to say that yep. that's all it is, yep. but it's such an internal practice as well. Um, so how does that play into some of the day-to-day -day things that you're thinking about, um, or just in how you operate as a, as a leader? Yeah. Well, you notice that I use human potential, not human performance. Right. Human potential is much more linked to the practice of yoga and yeah. yoga is a practice. You can't win yoga. Um, unlike, well, uh, you haven't seen me do yoga. <laughs> <laughs> so, maybe, you know, if that's what, if that's what the keeps you going. annual and, yoga competition. Um, I do look around the room when I'm doing yoga and I'm like, nah, I can, I'm more flexible than that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yoga is not about stretching. It's about reaching. I know. I'm just, yes. But and, just, and like, what yoga, what yoga taught me in terms of, um, it, it's a fully expressed practice. You know, yoga is a, is a way of living. 
not not something that you do in a studio with your body you know yoga as union as all eight tales encompasses everything from um you know moral decisions that you do or do not make all the way through to your the practice of meditation that is an extension of that and and indeed there's some there's some description that the asanas you know the 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 the, the poses the physical practice of yoga is in preparation for your ability to sit still for a really long time which is you know where enlightenment is most likely to happen as you practice your meditation and if i if i look at that and i look at look at the the other other signals in the world let's take blue zones for example mm-hmm. another code for living a great life where people are living long healthy happy existences um and and other and other sort of organized ways that people tend to be in a really positive heightened state right and so what we what we what we have as a a code of everyone practices yoga i wanted to take away the dna and then you know genetically modify it in such a way we say here's a code for life what's missing and we we internally will talk about uh, a lifestyle metric that we call the sweat life which is how you exist in the world with sweat grow and connect these mm-hmm. if we are able to offer services product experiences where you can sweat you can grow and you can connect with the world we believe that that is um, a means to achieving um, your own potential do you find that stillness in the sense that you stated it is counterintuitive to culture today because oh, like shit, we're always yeah. on yeah. Right. The, like <laughs> the 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 currency is a little screwed up right now. Yeah. You know, the currency of busyness, the currency of you know blow your brains out in a in a fitness environment is 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 wrong. You know the there is I mean one thing that I learned from elite sport is there's no such thing as overtraining, only under recovering. Mm. So if if elite guys know that, then it's only fair that everyone should have access to that and. Um, I am on a personal mission to shift the currency because the, the currency should be about quality, not quantity. Yeah. And it's the, it's the quality of the workout that you do, the quality of the relationships that you have, the quality of the, the network that you invest in, the, the, the quality of the recovery that you do. And I mean, I don't know, I don't know if you've talked to many people about, about sleep as an example, but you know, the, the days where, there's some kind of pride associated with being able to exist on limited amounts of sleep. They are dead and gone and they, they're never, oh, yeah. they're, you know, our sleeping is the highest performing enhancing thing you can do. Well, not only that, like it's so a couple of things on that point. Uh, Alexis Hanyan was on the show a, a couple of years ago, but recently he's been talking a lot about going against the grain of thinking that founders and entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs need to be doing 80, 90, 100 hour weeks. Yeah. And he's like, no, that's a, you like, that's just unhealthy. You know, it's unhealthy thinking and it's un- unhealthy practice. Second is uh, Moran Cerf, who's a neuroscientist who you should probably know. Um, he's a hacker turned neuroscientist, mm-hmm. um, but he's done sleep studies. He's like, that's the number one cause of happiness. Not even like, mm-hmm. yes, recovery from a physical standpoint, yeah. but just your emotional state of being. It's the, like above money, family, love, sex, yeah. like it's, it's sleep. Yeah, well, and when I say recovery, I I really mean restoration. I don't I don't mean sure. physical recovery. I mean your your opportunity to, um, you know, to to take your mind and body, which are inseparable, to the next level, comes from your entire daily practice, including your sleep. 
and you know where meditation comes in and you're probably most people are already meditating they just don't really realize it um we just want to give them more access to that what does that mean with that they don't um, just daydream like what's what does meditation look like if, so uh, there's a number there's a number of different practices i mean if you notice that there's anything that that you arrive calm from whether it's your drive to work maybe not in la um whether it's the the reading of a newspaper or a book or listening to music or the time that you spend with your children, the time you spend with your partner, the time you spend in nature, there's like we we are always all already <laughs> seeking yeah. out um, what it is to to take those moments and um, you know there there are enhancements to be had with um, by in, in introducing more mindful pursuits to your existence, but we all have them, we all have them. Right. Um, and yeah, we, we are, um, we're really excited actually to, um, remind people that that's true and, and get them addicted to themselves. You know, we, we know, I mean, I, I've worked in so much high performance that, um, knowledge, knowledge is not the key to high performance. You know, it's, it's the behavior that you adopt and understand and try and the risks that you take. Yeah. You know, we all know that we should eat a little less cake but we still do it. Um, so shout out to the pop tarts I ate last night at 11 o'clock. <laughs> but yeah, so, so getting into a space where we can help people, I mean, potential is realized when you are, when you, when you manage all of the choices that you make in a day and knowing and owning the choices that they're going to give you a little step backwards and yeah. then, and then having greater and better access, easier access, non mysterious access to the choices that are going to help you. And even going back to your, your greater mission, right. Of the changing the currency, you know, conversation and approach. I think a lot of us aren't aware of how all the inputs have an effect on us. Like if I wake up in the morning and I check my social media or go right to email yeah. or I'm, I immediately jump into two dozen things, even when I do get ready to make that choice, there's still like, there's still remnants of those mm -hmm. bits and pieces that I've, I've taken in that affect how I might make a decision at one o'clock versus three o'clock yeah. versus next week. And that's mindfulness. Yeah. I mean, my, to mindfulness, lit, like the, the, the true the definition of it is non-judgmental awareness. So to be able to increase, improve your in the moment awareness, because the present moment is the only thing you have. If you can, if you can change your awareness, judge it differently or not at all ideally then then those those choices emerge in a completely different way yeah and what we what we like to do i mean the reason i kind of like coming from an apparel place is you know i i i i, I, I i've been propagating this concept of the science of feel because i think it's the most important things that humans have yeah. you know we feel our way through the world what we feel is what we believe and feeling is a is a multi-sensory component it's what you see what you hear what you taste touch sense you know from a from a, a full multi-sensory capacity think about clothing you know human beings do two things that no other species does we make fire and we clothe ourselves so you get into why do we clothe ourselves we clothe ourselves originally for protection no doubt and then increasingly for you know statement but the, the, the third way that's not often talked about is we're attenuating this signal, this experience we have of all the environments that we go into. You know, we, we can feel our clothes, whether we realize or not that we can feel our clothes. When you got dressed today, you got dressed into an outfit for a reason for the things that you are going to do today. 
And those micro choices you made, micro choices, you just weren't necessarily aware of them. Do you like Game of Thrones? I love Game or of Thrones. Or do you Thrones, like Deadpool? Yeah. And Deadpool, yeah. Some good mashup shirt. <laughs> but if you, if, you, <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you go back to that moment and you think about the predictions that you were making and the sensory choices that you wanted to have, you were setting yourself up for either success or not. And um, if we want to get people into a place where that they can then make you know, more complicated decisions, everyone gets dressed every day. So everyone is already making that decisions. Flip your awareness of that, help you realize that you're creating sensory choice and that sensory choice gets you closer to your potential. Every other decision becomes a much more straightforward nudge after that. Yeah, I have a, I have a weird connection with fashion. Uh, not weird, but my mom taught fashion design for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, from fabrics to having rehearsals in our house for her students to, you know, um, being in fashion shows myself, I was a swimmer. I have this picture. You've probably seen this, Eric, um, in my living room of me flexing in a speedo. Yeah. Um, I must have been like thirteen. Like it was, it's, it's kind of weird and almost borderline foul. But, um, but I've, I've always kind of thought about fashion. I, I worked in the industry for a, a little bit, but it's, it's also the one great democratized form of self self-expression yeah right because if a car or a house or these big ticket items may not be readily accessible to me it, there's even documentaries on the history of fashion in hip-hop and it, mm -hmm. they talk about like in the 50s and 60s there was a there was sales training videos on how to sell clothes to the negro not in the, and they didn't mean oh it in the offensive sense but they were talking about like how in you know poor neighborhoods your clothes are really all you have, you know, and, you know, to be able to look good and feel better and feel better than your environment is, or your surrounding environment was so key to sale selling in this particular part of town. Um, so I'm just accentuating your point, um, in, in a, in a different way, but I, I love that. That yeah. that's well, I like, I like what the, you, point. the phrase, I use a phrase similar. You got to look like you feel good and feel like you look good yeah. for whatever scenario you're about to get into. And, that doesn't like people will often sort of um, drop back to the word comfort. I just want to be comfortable. It's like, well, there's a can of worms. <laughs> like comfort to me is like Pandora's box. You know, there's there's just there's no there's no singular um, definition. You know, we are we are comfortable at some points when we're uncomfortable. You know, why 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 would we need to create the uniform of I don't know a business suit, which I don't really wear very often, if ever. Um, I wouldn't claim that as a comfortable right. outfit, but it creates a statement and the sensory experience of wearing that suit makes me feel powerful. And so when we start to understand what does, what does that actually mean? Like we challenge it. We challenge, well, can I still feel powerful another way? Or what is it about that sensory formula that makes me feel, feel powerful? Yeah. It can't be just what I see in myself and others. There's something about the cut, the fit, the weight, the texture, the pressure that it applies to my body that gives me that expectation of, of the perception yeah. that I'm looking for that gives me the sense of power. Well, I think, I guess philosophically, it really ties back into where you first started talking about Lululemon and the operating system is that being comfortable with ambiguity. And mm -hmm. I talk to my kids about this. I talk to teams I've managed about like, be comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. because that's just a, that's how we live on a day-to-day -day basis you know you get in a car accident on the way to work and you're like ah it just disrupts your whole day like you're going to have moments of discomfort and yeah. the more you let them get to you the less you're able to you know just thrive i guess yeah um well the actions that you take are critical so yeah we, we i meet a lot of people that claim to be comfortable with ambiguity 
but that doesn't mean that they do anything about it. Right. And I think the, the the people that I've hired or or not or you know or, or had to let go, generally they've come in being clear that they they are comfortable with ambiguity. But it's do you get into a state of paralysis or do you see a white piece of paper and you just start to create? Right. And that's that's a much rarer talent than than I had imagined actually because of how many people that I'd met that could demonstrate that they could cope with ambiguity. Mm-hmm. But I mean, resilience is great. You need resilience, oh, yeah. but but without creativity, it's nothing. It's just like being tough. Yeah. Oh, trust me. I, I mean, it, it's just having very much a lack of a brief on an assignment. You're like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing. And you're like, you just you you start the the thing. Um, but I wanted to transition a little bit into a little bit more of the brass tacks, right? Sure. And I think sometimes in the ambiguity, you find, see, watch the segue. Sometimes in ambiguity, <laughs> you find, you discover pain points, right? And mm-hmm. I was looking at, for example, the nothing bra that you guys created, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of walk us through that project. But what I like about it was that through all this human intuition and paying attention, you you start to discover different pain points that you can solve for in inventive ways. Yeah. Um, so I'll preface it with that, but you tell the story of the the nothing bra. Yeah, I mean the 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 like like nothing bra is um, uh, is part of a continuum of 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 an exploration we've been on now for. Uh, we launched first in 2015, so we started the research 2013. Oh, wow. And um, the the principles that we were following was all around the science of feel that that we could hear people talking about and behaving in certain ways that we didn't feel were being properly listened to. Um, people will talk about, uh, "I really like this product; it feels really light." And then typically, you know, the the brand, the company will say, "Okay, we need to make it way less." And the 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 obsession that I have that I've you know built into the code of the team is they said they want to feel light. What does light feel like? And we will take that principle to every single problem that crosses our desks. Mm. And it started actually in pants. And the the pants that we that we had and it's the core of our business. And I'm very lucky we had some problems in 2013 which opened the door to us going after what is our core business, which as an innovator is like the rarest tree ever. You know? <laughs> right. And 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 so we so we we took this principle and said, I want I want to take a neuromechanical approach, which is I want to understand the dialogue between brain and body. What is it that makes our pants so good? What is it that when people say, I love the feel of your pants, they're like nothing else I've ever put on my body. You know, I heard terms like, oh, you guys make the, the bras for butts or, you know, there's this, there's this phenomenon. <laughs> the there was, for butts. There was, awesome. And there was this phenomena floating around the business called the Luon orgasm, which is Luon was this fabric. And it was the first time that someone experienced Luon on their bare skin <laughs> and, the no- and the noise that they would make that would come from the fit room. And, and I was like, there's something there. Like, yeah. What is it? And he's like, oh, well, it's our secret source. And I was like, well, apparently your source is so secret that no one knows what the hell it is. <laughs> so we reverse engineered it. And I said, this is it. This is the beginning where we will be able to go anything on the body. We started on the body. We're going to ask, what is it that people are searching for? We're going to listen to their language. And then we're going to look at the critical attributes that make that language true. So if they say, I love it, it feels really soft. We're not going to say, is it just the softness of the fabrics? What is it that they're experiencing? Is it texture associated with the temperature of their skin? Is it something to do with how we lift their muscle and change the sculpt the shape of their soft tissue? Because it might be something else. If we get that number one attribute right, 
then we capture people in the moment because they put it on their body and they get validated with the language that they want to use. We just make sure that we don't hear it literally. We make sure that we understand what it is that makes a difference. And I mean, it goes back to the genesis of, you know, going in the research group, which was around golf clubs. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it that makes a golf club feel really good when you drive a tee shot? It's the sound of the ball coming off the face of the club. It's not the vibrations that go through your hand. So, you know, if you take what appears to be the literal uh, route, you won't get to right. a new or the right answer. And with bras, um, we, we, we did a quick follow-up. And bras, again, the language is, I want to feel supported. And my God, I wish I could just feel comfortable. And there's a paradox there. And there's a compromise in every product that we'd ever seen or ever tested. Right. That people wanted to feel supported. Um, the industry at large was saying, okay, to, to feel supported is to eliminate movement. And we said again, they said feel supported. They didn't say that they wanted to wear a bridge on their body. This isn't just <laughs> structural engineering to you know to right. add stiffness. Where where in any other machine or system in the world where if you had movement that was was somewhat a requirement, you know, a human body re is required to move. If you eliminate that movement, when would that ever feel good? If you if you eliminated the movement of the suspension of your car, would that feel good? Right. No, you'd lose all your fillings. So so we 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 took a we took a, a basic approach to say we need to understand what are the true critical attributes of feeling support supported and what is the one that's at the top and we better get that right and so we built a, a bra and it was a, again a cross-functional project across all of the teams of the business we just led the scientific research and then the sort of the connecting of the dots and then the validation of every every product right. iteration that came out and um, what we were searching for was um, how do we embrace movement in such a way that we that movement is allowed to occur? Because if I don't experience um, movement there in the right way, then I start to get into a place where I'm uncomfortable. Right. And so this was originally it was a high support bra and high support bra, meaning we wanted someone to really be able to run you know, really like go through high intensity movement patterns and we wanted them to still feel comfortable without, as soon as they're done, wanting to rip the thing off their body mm -hmm. and, and like put on their comfortable bra. And um, so we figured out the gap, you know, this white space between high support bras and, you know, what we had a lot of, which were these sort of yoga soft bras and people were wearing, wearing them for completely different environments. And we, we then engineered a product that sat right in the middle it embraced the movement uh, of a breast and it helped us to, um, uh, and it encapsulated the body in the right way. It, tr it tr uh, transferred the forces of movement all around the different right parts of the body so that you didn't feel one pinch point, one anchor point. Mm. You know, it's, like, it's like soft support. It's like really good car suspension. Yeah. Um, and um, that proved that so we were right. So you use your car design Thing. Yeah, I tend to I tend to use I, my 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 go-to analogies are automotive and food. <laughs> nice. Um so I guess that's just something I've ever I don't think we've heard a food one yet. Uh, no, we haven't actually. Have we? Um I'll I'll pull one out in a minute. Um but yeah, so then uh so that was that was problem solved number 1. In the in the world of building pants prior, we'd built a palette of sensations. So we'd we'd reconfigured the way that people bought pants that was you know we recognized people wanted a yoga pant we they recognized people wanted a run pant or, or you know all of the different product iterations we might have but people were using run pants for yoga and yoga pants for run 
And so they were telling us something. And so when we started to deep dive into it, we understood that some people in some days and the same person can want different things different days. I want to feel a little bit more naked and free and um, at one with the world. I don't want to feel held in, locked down, covered mm-hmm. up. Um and that might be, I want to feel like that for yoga or I might want to feel like that for run. It's down to you. Your personal preference is your personal preference. But what it what it showed to us was there was this really big space around truly allowing someone to feel covered and supported, but so very close to naked that they would feel really, truly free. Mm. And um, so we, 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 we built a, a, a naked sensation uh, group of pants um, that have... I mean, taken our world by storm, um, but it showed us that there was this, there was this space, there was this, let's call it naked sensation um, that can glitch people. So I'll consider. No, that you see, I'm a, being very quiet because I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. probably the most immature person you've spoken to this week. And so, so. <laughs> but but the when we when we then started to to uh, apply our attention to female support and category of bra, we like we hear the same language. Yeah. We hear the same language, which is, I just want to, you know, I want to feel supported enough, but really I just, I just want to, I want it to not be there. And so we said, I what if, wonder if it's possible. I wonder if does, it's possible. To does that language more. change? Cause it, you know, with men's product, like I wear a, oh, yeah. a ton of Lululemon. Does that like, does the, what I want to feel, or is that even an utterance, right? Um, when you're dealing with a, a different. Yeah. The, the, I mean, everyone actually, everyone so often uses their very own language and we will mm-hmm. we'll cluster that language and we'll name the cluster so that right. the cluster is called naked but what what you would describe maybe you would say uh, no distraction or like i just don't want to know it's there you know you you know a bit more of a, a broader right. phraseology or something like that but we know what you, we know what you're saying yeah and you might even say i just like it when it feels really light yeah you know, so you might be and it, and it ain't going to be a measure of its mass it's going to be because you're searching for that the end result is that you want to feel what we call more naked. Well, it's there's an inter. I, I mean, or better than naked. Better, I don't think there's a such thing. But um, no, I think when you think about like um, the folks that you've tested your products with, or the folks that you get the feedback from, but you're also selling products by the millions, mm-hmm. right? How do you know which that you've gotten the correct sample size? of individual input and design and so on and so forth so that I can feel like this was made just for me, even though 10,000 other people might say the same thing and we're all different body types and climates and cultures and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, we, we know that, um, for products on the body that there's a, there's a, a setting of levers around you, how you move, how you experience texture, how you, experience your environment because you're exchanging heat and humidity with the environment all the time we know that you are uniquely you and you're still just a human being so there's there's some basic bands that everyone exists in and then there are preferences that we have to make possible and so the difference for other other organizations is like here's our yoga pant we will say here are the different sensations that you can achieve in in a pant that you might want to do yoga in or maybe you want to go for a run in it so just by the very nature of building a more of a human first and matrixed approach, yeah. people can find what they like better. And the navigation is the challenging thing. So we've, for bras, we've built a, uh, a, a system now where 
we can identify the way you move and everyone moves uniquely. Your gait is like your fingerprint and we can take your fingerprint and then by understanding a little bit about your psychology, a little bit about your emotional response to questions we might ask, a little bit about your behavior, we start to understand also your preference in terms of how you would like to feel. We don't overly um so go like after that number or anything like no no not, not 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 yet i <laughs> right. mean there's there, yeah. there are ways to do stuff like that but we don't we're not we're not i don't want to turn i don't want to turn any individual into thinking that a bra is a science project you know that yeah. i want i want them to just say the words that they would say and then i want us to help them navigate the navigate the products that we have available so that they can more likely find the one that they like so we call it your signature movement which um require which involves a very very simple set of sensors that you don't have to own we just you know help you out with them uh, an algorithm that takes you that that is a, a um uh, activated on the basis of taking in a lot of you know qu- qualitative information mm-hmm. from from you um that we've either watched you do or that you've talked to us about and then we can we can help you get into the right product for you and we'll we'll, pre- we'll always present you with with choice. So there'll be at least three items that we say this is most likely to fulfill your needs of the mm-hmm. support that your body requires. Because you, know, you pick six different thirty uh, two D breasts, for example, they will all move completely differently, and the owner of those breasts will all experience the sensation of that movement completely differently. So we have right. to make sure that you get into the thing that's right for you and that we've so we've cracked that and that's i mean it, that's taking multi-million dollar facilities that you can do it in to something that you can do for a few bucks in a store environment maybe even in your home and that's that's coming you know in the in the next that's great next period um how did the a couple more questions before we wind down but how did the idea of athleisure change the approach to the business and i don't know if you were there at the time when like it rose but you know, like somebody going to work and somebody like that's neither running nor, you know, yoga, but it's a fashion statement It's still comfortable. Like, how did that change the approach to some of the things that you're talking about now? Uh, I'd say it's the other way around. I say athleisure rose because of the business we created. So we preceded athleisure. Um, and I would I would I would dare to say that we were the originator. Yeah. You know, we were the ones that recognized that people particularly um women were living increasingly busy increasingly transient crossover life lives you know they were you know professional business people they were you know um leaders of their family or members of their family they you know they were they cared about their health they care about you know their career and and so they were squishing more and more things together and um anyone that was going to help them to dress appropriately to be able to simplify those decisions. So for us, it was a functional challenge. Let's help people look like they feel good and feel like they look good um, in in all different kinds of scenarios without having to get changed yeah. into 20 different outfits in a day. So we did it because we solved the problem. It inspired a nation because um, people recognized that it, it helped them live their lives better. And I think that in turn, because it then became more apparent that more people were choosing to wear those things in the office on a date, you know, uh, of course, to their studio um, or, you know, out, out while they're exercising. I think that the fashion industry 
picked up their version of it and then you know took it to scale yeah no that's great it's funny even as we were talking before we started the recording about your chief product officer who does a week in vancouver and a week in los angeles also is a mom of a young child so Mm -hmm. like she's almost and i find this come across a lot of people inside the organization in some way they live and breathe on a personal level what the brand represents and i don't think you find that at a lot of like nobody at coke is like having a sugary dinner like it's just, you know as you no offense to coke um but i think there's there's something about the culture of the individuals that you know they're not just making the products and selling them they're also they understand the lifestyle from a personal level yeah you don't um uh lululemon you choose lululemon as much as lululemon chooses you it's a it's as it's a um it's a it's a culture that if you are someone that that really genuinely cares about your health, your career, you know that that they they're kind of paradoxical sometimes. But we we live on the assumption that if we if we plan, if we set our own personal visions and we set clear goals, that we that we can live big lives. Yeah. And um, if everyone's doing that around you, you realize it's possible. And um, there's a support network associated with that. There's a recognition of the of the compromises that sometimes you have to make. If family calls, you've got to be able to support them. You know, if if work is heating up, then you've probably you're with the right kind of family that understands that. And you know, it's a it is a it is a cultural um, I don't know cultural kind of. I keep thinking of disease, but it's like, it's because it's 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 this it's this it's this airborne glitter that mm. one that once it starts to stick to you you realize that you can live a whole human life and because the company is founded on that we're not just right. trying to we're not just trying to bring it in so so that you know we fulfill some kind of hr quota the company was built on living big lives as whole humans recognizing that our responsibility is to elevate the world to greatness. And if we don't do that to ourselves, then we ain't got any, no hope with the yeah. rest of the world. No, kudos to you and like, and everyone, obviously, I, I think for maintaining it. You, you've seen, we've all seen a lot of companies grow and lose the thing that made them what they were in the first place. Hell yeah. Um, so, uh, so thank you for that. Um, where do you look outside uh because i mean you've been sports tech for a very long time yeah right and there's a human performance yes um but there's so many other things out there i find like a lot of innovators have very meandering paths sometimes like Mm -hmm. oh i've worked in you know talent management and then i went and did this and then i did and so they draw from all those vast experiences but you seem pretty astute on the holistic human experience where do you go for your own personal inspiration or information or updates or um, I read a ton. Um, I'm a learn it all for sure. Um, I I've got a book for you. If you yeah, if you can recommend. I never, I never, <laughs> I never turn down an offer for a conversation from the most out there source. Um, I you know I kiss a lot of frogs, but but on the basis that every now and again you strike gold. You, you know you just. You meet someone that totally changes the way that you think. They introduce you to um, a group of people that are able to solve problems the way that you've never been able to solve them, or they, or they, they operate their business in a way that you know you haven't tried yet. Yep. You know, whether that whether that is 
automotive, the, f- the food industry, sporting goods. And the, wherever there is a human trying to perform better or trying to get humans to perform better, there's probably a lesson to be learned. And so yeah. I just, it's the, I mean, I, I, I define my own purpose as, um, as being a, a crucible for knowledge and wisdom to inspire audacious acts. Hmm. So in no way do I talk about sport. I am here on this planet for as long as they'll give me um, to to help people tap into their own individual potential. And what I can do is go to disparate sources and connect the dots between information, knowledge sources to to help generate wisdom, to generate more of my own wisdom so that I can encourage people to go and do bold things. How do you stay glued to that purpose? Because I think it, as much as a company can grow and lose that nucleus of you know what their brand is built on i think the same thing can happen with people right you achieve a certain level of success or you know your attention is taken by the doing versus being aware of like you said there's a bigger mission at stake how do you stay glued to that on a daily daily basis i think for the for the people that are lucky enough to discover their purpose it's not about being glued to it it's about everything else just goes away so if there are if there are decisions that I have to make is only in fulfillment of my purpose. Got it. So um, I think that there are a lot of people that have not yet found like what it is that they love, what it is that they're good at, what it is that the world needs, and what it is that they can make a career out of. You know, answer all those four questions. You got your purpose, and if you've got your purpose um, um, understood in such a way that you know where you're at that you know it is a practice a bit of a mountain without a top um you you it's not so much that you have you have to work to stay glued to it it's just that you have to make sure that you don't allow anything to get in the way of it uh the show's called innovation crush what have you seen in the world that you have a personal crush on you just mentioned a lot of spaces you've walked into and conversations you've had and things you've seen and probably eaten um, what is out there that you personally crush on? Uh, what do I crush on? I um, I I I am somewhat enamored by um, any individual who uh, seems a little bit crazy uh, to start with and is told no a thousand times, and um, often they're a little obvious the ones that i'll i'll talk to um whether it's a a steve jobs or an elon musk or um i think that the one that that i go to that i wish i wish i could have met would would be um leonardo da vinci Mm. and um i don't know if you've read any of the, the the biographies around him but the the concept of what it is to be a polymath which, um, you know, often he's talked about as a genius. I don't think he's necessarily a genius. I just, uh, and, 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 and because of the, the, the people that have written about him, they, they've, they've said he, he wasn't necessarily a genius. He was just, he was the most curious person potentially that the world has ever seen. Wow. And, um, he was, he was, he was deeply obsessed by not letting that go, you know, reading, looking at his notebooks associated with, you know, I need to go and meet that sculptor to teach me how to sculpt. I need to go and meet that physician to teach me how to dissect a human body. I need to go and meet that, um, you know, businessman to teach me how to, you know, figure out, you know, the mathematics of that time. Yeah. And there's, there's just that, that 
really inspires me. Um, yeah. I see I see a lot of great athletes just just again not leaving stones unturned to find the greatest levels of performance. And you know, it's come from their study of creativity. It's come from their study of um, the other things that help them to achieve greatness. And you know, I'm 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 really over physical performance you know yeah. we, we are not limited by our physical selves it's all our psychological perceptual you know emotional selves that, you do you do all you also do a lot of adventure racing yeah uh, yeah i do i mean i, so, I do uh tri- triathlon mainly now um so up to the ironman distance which yeah that's part of i mean i when i when i think about innovation it's it's both it's a team sport and it's a contact sport, so it's kind of like rugby. <laughs> um, it's also an endurance sport, and the 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 most important thing that I learned from endurance racing, which you know the, my main non-family non-work focus uh, now, is that you don't win by being best at running or cycling or swimming. You 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 win or succeed or achieve your greatest potential with pacing and nutrition. Like <laughs> good innovation knows how to manage timing. And you got to feed it, and so um, I bring those two principles all all the way That's through awesome. my life. And you know, I, I get inspired by great coaches, by great athletes, by by great creatives. Anyone anyone that is so curious that's willing to step out of their box into someone else's, you know, to like, eliminate then the boundaries between those boxes. But yeah, the, the 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 obvious ones are the the obvious ones, and. My, my personal mission, you know, what the legacy I want to leave behind is that it is possible to do it in the most humane, humanistic way, um, whereby success is not attributed to any one individual. Mm-hmm. Success is always, you know, the sum of all of its parts or greater than because you acknowledge there's multiple parts. I think, you know, leaders like us have to hold the space for it and, you know, take the heat for it and, um, you know, I I kind of in a sick way enjoy that part of it. And I don't know. I don't know whether that's <laughs> I think you just have by to, practice like, or what. But. I, you know, I think there's uh, not to keep you too long, but I think there's something about the craziness of it that you have to love. You know, and in a lot of obvious ways, like I represent an underrepresented group of people in rooms that I go in, and sometimes when I talk to other black or you know. Um, just inclusionary groups of individuals. So like part of you has to just love that game of conversion, right? And if if I were a white male who had it all and I'm an innovator, I'm still like the game is still to convert you to my process, my methodology, my idea, whatever it is. You know, there's, there has to be an excitement in playing that part of the game. I, I uh, yeah, believe. totally. I mean, I, 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 seek out, I seek out the adversity that I need that keeps me keeps me energized given that you know i haven't had to face a ton of adversity so i think it's more of an attitude and a mindset which is you know i just i am dissatisfied with this world yeah and i've got whatever the the whatever's ticking down on the clock till till when i have to stop that that's how long i've got to screw with it and i'm not screwing with it just to just to make a point i just i genuinely believe that we are so far from reaching our fullest potential and if i can even move the needle a quarter of a percent then well yeah that was uh last but not least complete this phrase for me innovation to me is innovation to me is can i answer it a few ways you can answer how many this is yes 
you are so multi-potentialite. If, if, if I get if I get all <laughs> if I get all like okay, I'm going to be academic about it. Innovation to me is the recognition of uh, barriers, the invention around them, and the resulting behavior that has never happened before, then being the norm. So that that's what it's I'm not, looking well for. Well like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I get I, I get asked. That get was asked, not off the dome. That was I, not a freestyle. I get asked that that the question in that way a lot. You know, if if mm. I'm teaching or writing about innovation, that's typically what I'm searching for. And I've led I've read a lot of definitions, and they haven't quite hit it for me because it there has to, it, so many things get called innovation, and they just it kind of it makes the word dead to me. Yeah. Um. But for me, there there has to be an obstacle. And you have to invent around it. And, th and that invention then has to change your behavior. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. Otherwise, it's just novelty or just the act of creativity that, you know, it has to be, you know, if art is what one person can do and science is the sort of the codification of that so that it can be done at scale, yeah. like innovation sits in there somewhere. Um, I think the, the, the other side of that, like innovation, what innovation is to me, where it's obviously um, pays the bills, <laughs> um, um, but it also, um, I think, I think the most important, that just generic way to think about innovation, assuming that not everyone has the privilege of getting to do it for a career is just that it reminds us that, that we are an inventive species that, that we together, like humans coming together with other humans, like the way that our social infrastructure works, we're super curious and we're just desperate to go and pioneer something. Yeah. Whether it's let's climb that mountain, let's get onto that other planet. You know, let's let's you know let's see if we can win this particular sports game. Let's try that food that's growing over there that we've never tried before. You yeah. know, the in innovation to me is curiosity and the desire that the other side of that curiosity something cool happens. Yeah, and th that 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 should drive all of us because I mean, what's the opposite to that? it's stagnation or, or, you know, working in a machine and just being a cog. And then you suddenly clock out at the end of your life and you realize that you know, the world didn't really change because of the time that you spent on it. Yeah. And that's it's, just not, a, not an option. For there's me. a line of thinking around the idea that, you know, the endorphin of successfully, you know, the endorphins that get released when you successfully solve a problem, like are, you know, almost like the feeling naked or it's just the, it's euphoric. Um, I spent some time working for a company called Machinima and we did a lot of studying around gamers and, mm -hmm. and that's the whole like idea of like figuring this out, progressing, defeating, you know, you're constantly in this state of goal, accomplish, goal, accomplish. Yeah. And, and that's why there's such a rabid multi-billion dollar industry around that thing alone. But it's, I think it's very indicative of everything you've talked about today, yeah. which well, is that's, I like, mean, dopamine addiction at scale. It yes. does concern me a little bit because that also, that's like, so if, you know, from a game theory point of view, there are other hormones we should be like fueling our bodies with mm -hmm. because the, the danger with dopamine is it is highly addictive. And, um, if you think about, and it, and it becomes, um, um, kinesthetic in that you think about the scroll on your phone with your thumb mm -hmm. you start to directly relate the microdose of dopamine you get from getting a like with the scroll of your thumb which means you do it more and more and more and what do you get you get the currency of busyness mm -hmm. you get the currency of people fighting for our attention and us wanting to give it to them and i think if we can get into a place where we're much deeper more, more deeply taking in you know great swathes of oxytocin 
you know, we're starting to um, experience the the analgesic response of of a true endorphin, you know, and whereby you know you get that 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 release from exercise that um, that then is it's like a it's like a pain medication that like comes through your body. Those things improve your empathy. Those things improve your ability to relate. Those things improve your ability to be aware of yourself. And I, yeah, there's 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 something fascinating yeah. about a world that's addicted to reward versus a world that would be addicted to you know human connection. Yeah, you just scienced everybody. <laughs> Science <laughs> shit out of y'all. Um, uh, so, where can people go to find more information on you? White Space, Lululemon. Where do you? Where do you? Where do you want to um, send people? I to? would. I mean, you could to 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 go and experience our our stores is to experience Lululemon. We have an incredible group of educators. We call ourselves associates that just are our brand personified. Yeah. Um, if you want to learn a little bit more about me, I'm an avid LinkedIn user. Um, it's where I mine the world for interesting leads and places that I can go and play. Um, and I'm really responsive on that platform. Um, then, you know, uh, look us up in Vancouver. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we have... Which is like the cleanest city in the world. It's one of the top. One of the, yeah. It's one of the most livable cities in the world. Yeah, yeah. it's not... It does not suck in Vancouver. <laughs> um, but no, we, 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 we don't have a ton of information out there about white space. Sure. Um, but you know, we've, we've, lots of us now have started to get on, on the circuit where we're, we're, we're improving access to our profile. Um, the brand as well is telling our story more and more and more. Um, but yeah, we are, we, we want people to know that we exist. We are a, we are an open door innovation team. Um, and our job is to, um, not assume we've hired all the smartest people in the world. It's to make sure that the smartest people in the world know that we would love to work with them. That's great. Uh, well, thank you for joining us here. We work, uh, we.co slash crush for more information. Um, and everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you. Do- I'm gonna call you doctor anyway. <laughs> no, well, thank you. Thank <laughs> Dr. you. For- Dub. Um, no, thank you so much. This is uh, an amazing conversation and everyone out there listening. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>